bring it out. Okay, I'm sorry. We're just working on some details there. Um, I texted uh, Bob Cook before the service and uh, did not get a response in enough time, so Andrew's going to be double-checking that. Okay, we are on Lesson 2, and just trying to set the groundwork here. Uh, the question is, or the statement really is, why we use a dispensational approach to understand the Bible. And uh, the basics of this are simply, number one, there are questions in the Bible that really demand answers. And we'll be going over some of those again. The uh, golden rule of biblical understanding is a literal interpretation. By that, we mean literal grammar, we mean literal historical and social context. Uh, We want to use and understand what the author meant when he wrote those words. And uh, then a dispensational, uh, what is a dispensation? It uh, It is simply a method of simple, systematic, literal understanding of the Bible. And we understand, and people have often said, well, the Bible's full of contradictions. Well, a dispensational approach to the Scriptures eliminates those contradictions. And uh, we've come down through here and the different dispensations. This is where we ended from creation to the fall is called the age of innocence. This is while Adam and Eve were in the garden until they sinned. Then uh, the uh, one of the standard terms is the age of conscience. This is from uh, Adam and Eve's sin until the earth became so corrupt that God uh, then sent the flood. Uh, once they got off the ark... Things were different after the ark than before. And uh, then we have uh, the Tower of Babel. And what you're going to see is a constant cycle. Uh, If you skip back to the back page here uh, under uh, .7 and D, we have God's revelation to man, man's failure to obey God's revelation, God's judgment. And then God's new revelation. And so that pattern will be repeated. And so, first of all, next we're just going to move to uh, how do we define the the dispensations. Number one, the textbook definition. It is the action of administering, ordering, or managing the system by which things are administered. Uh, the Greek word, people like to make a lot of that, is oikonomia. It is where we get our modern word economy. And what is an economy? An economy is a system of distribution. And what we have going on in the United States right now is an argument uh, as to what type of economy the United States should have. Should it be a capitalist economy where you go to work and you receive wages and you earn uh, what you receive in the marketplace? Or should it be a socialistic economy where we go put forth all of our effort, the government takes everything and then gives us what we need? Um, Anyone who would have any comprehension of history at all has to know Socialism cannot, never has, never will work. Uh, Those that lived in the former Soviet Union. uh, My favorite way of explaining it is those people who are striving to be in control of everything uh, gain more and more power until they have total control of everything only to find out nothing is left. Uh, Because that's what happens under socialism. And uh, you, you need to pray for our country. And uh, I, I don't know what else to say except pray for our state. Uh, the passing of this reproductive rights bill is 
probably the single greatest abomination uh, because this is not judges ruling on things. This was a Senate and an assembly in a state that passed these laws and encoded the murder of babies. In their, There's no other way to put it. Uh, this includes the abortion of babies that can live outside the mother's womb. You can go into a doctor's office, get a doctor to say that it is needful, and they will kill the child. And uh, it, the uh, abortion has been now removed from the criminal code of the state of New York. So you cannot be tried for committing an abortion. If you're a drunken driver and you hit a pregnant woman and cause her to lose her unborn child, uh, there's no crime there in the state of New York now. This, this is what our, our people have done, uh, you know, and, uh, and we can understand right here in Astoria, we have one of the more liberal assembly members and the most liberal Senate member in the New York State Assembly is Michael Generis. He's from Astoria. And these people are not only strong proponents, but the people who have moved these things through the legislature and are, were high-fiving each other and rejoicing uh, when these bills were passed. And uh, you know what? We as Christians still need to understand God has not changed His rules. Amen? God has not changed who He is. And even though people are trying to redefine things, and one of the one of the things that dispensationalism illustrates so aptly, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, is man's rebellion against God and God's great power of forgiveness and reconciliation. It is highlighted in our Bible. So as we look here, the economy is a system of distribution, a system of administration. In, uh, in our Oxford English Dictionary, definition 6 under section 2, says a religious order or system conceived as divinely instituted or as a stage in progressive revelation expressly adapted to the needs of a particular nation or period of time. Now, I'd like to tell you and comment that the Oxford English Dictionary is more theologically correct uh, than many people who claim to be preachers out there. Uh, It it gives a a very succinct and good definition here. And, And so, all the word dispensation means is that God set up a system... Things were different in the garden than they were while Noah was building an ark. Would you agree with me on that? Things were different for Moses and the children of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai than they were for Cain and Abel. Would you agree? Than they are for you and I today. And this is dispensationalism actually just recognizes this. Now, we're going to let the Bible define the word for us. There, It is used four times, the word dispensation, in our King James Bible. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.17, For if I do this thing willingly, preaching the gospel, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. Paul is saying, I have direct direction from God in the message that I am preaching and I cannot go back on the direction that God has given me. Ephesians 1.10 says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Now, let me ask you a question. Are all things gathered together, both in heaven and in earth, in Jesus Christ right now? No, because we're here on earth and they're still there in heaven. Amen? 
Uh, is there going to be a time when all of those things are gathered together in one? Oh, absolutely. We just haven't gotten there yet. You know, uh, one of the great charges that all these quote-unquote scholars have against dispensationalism is that it is modern. It's a new understanding of the Bible. Well, right now, we have two complete dispensations right here that Paul is alluding to. Uh, the dispensation of the fullness of times, which has not happened yet. We would call that the dispensation of the kingdom or the millennial dispensation when God will have all things that are His gathered together in one, uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. In, in Ephesians 3, 2, it says, If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word. Colossians 1, 25, Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given for me, to me, for you, to fulfill the word of God. So what we have here is Paul is explaining that his message, that his ministry, is different from that of the Old Testament. And that there's coming a time when things will be different from when they are now. And so in the Bible, we have, in the teachings of Paul, I should say, we have three different dispensations alluded to. The Old Testament law, the dispensation of grace, and the dispensation of the fullness of times, which is yet to come. So, if we have these three that are alluded to by Paul in his teaching in only four verses of our Bible, uh, are there more different systems or different economies? Could there possibly be more than just these three in our Bible? And I would say, absolutely. Because things were different in the Garden of Eden. After the Garden of Eden, things changed. After the flood, things changed. After Abraham and the children of Israel were chosen, God took Israel out of Egypt and gave them a law. That was a huge change. In fact, it was such a huge change that most of our Protestant theologians will only accept two covenants, they say. The covenant of law... And the covenant of grace. Well, the only problem that we have is this covenant of law. They take Abraham and stuff him into the covenant of law. Well, how does that work? The law wasn't given until 430 years after the children of Israel were in the land of Egypt. And Abraham was already passed away before the children of Israel went into the land of Egypt. Uh, and... What we have are insurmountable difficulties in a simple, consistent understanding of the Bible. We can find that as Paul defined these, we will find that there are some others. And that's number two. Can we define these different systems? Yes, we can. We can use the scripture to show how God changed things. But just because God changed some things, does that demand contradiction in the Scripture? And see, this is where the dispensational approach fills one of its greatest needs. It helps us to be able to identify these changes and to understand that they are not contradictory in nature. When we uh, get... To the next point, and I just want to stop right here, kind of a, uh, make, make one stand and turn with me to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, if you would, in your Bibles, because there are some people who use dispensationalism as a means of chopping up their Bible, as a means of doing things to the Scripture and the grace of God that God never intended. So just because someone uses the title, 
I'm a dispensationalist. You don't necessarily endorse everything that they claim to believe. And yet, I can promise you, if you meet someone, uh, Stephen Anderson is one of them, who claims that dispensationalism is a bunch of garbage and all of this, you can understand that there is a multitude of errors there. Because if you reject a dispensational approach to Scripture, you're rejecting an awful lot of other things. The whole key here, the whole connection to, to uh, dispensationalism, the reason we bring the theological term into our services and try to explain it and, and define it is because it links us to a consistent, now this is the key, a consistent, literal understanding of the Scripture. And there is no other method of Bible study out there. Uh, it's amazing to me. Uh, I've met people who said, I don't believe anything about dispensationalism. I said, okay, so why don't you offer sacrifices? Because Jesus is my sacrifice. I said, okay. Uh, did you know that was a dispensational truth? No, it's not. It's a Bible truth. Ah. Hence the reason we use it. Amen? Just like our Baptist distinctives. They did not come from a Baptist catechism book. They did not come from some man's writing. They are simple, definable Bible doctrines. And that's why we use the name Baptist today. That's why we're not getting rid of it even though there's some real rats with the name Baptist. You know something? There's some real rats in every group, denomination, and uh, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll take the Baptist rats over the Catholic ones any day, uh, or the Mormon ones, uh, or uh, you just pick your genre, and uh, somebody says, well, what about the... Uh, Bible church guys, they're so nice, they haven't done anything mean to anybody. Well, the only problem was they didn't exist 150 years ago. Because the people who believed what they believed were Baptist. They came out of the Baptist movement because they didn't want to take the stands that the Bible demands that we take. And so he wanted to be nice to everybody. And Brother Clayton put it better than anyone. He said, you want to fill up your building? Just stand at the door and tell everybody walks through. Hello, you're right. And that's what we have going on today. And uh, we, can't, we cannot do that and be honest to the Scriptures. And so in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, 8 through 10, you should have these verses memorized. If you don't, let's work on them uh, and get those imparted and embedded in our minds. It says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And by the way, the context, verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. There is only one type of salvation in the Bible. You will meet some dispensationalists. If you go buy their books, and I don't recommend that you necessarily do that, but you will find people who will talk about uh, being saved by works in the Old Testament and saved by grace in the New Testament. Nothing could be farther from the truth. How are we saved? Read Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to touch on that in just a few minutes. But we are saved by God's grace. What brought the voice of God walking in the cool of the garden to hunt up Adam and Eve as they had sewed fig leaves together and were hiding from the voice of the Lord? It was His grace. Amen. And God took animals and killed them and made coats and covered Adam and Eve. And by the way, it wasn't caveman's clothing. Uh, they didn't look like, uh, 
what was it, Wilma and Fred Flintstone or whatever like that. God made clothes. And the Bible does define what nakedness is. It is from the thigh to the neck. It's got to be covered. And so God covered them. And we have the first sacrifice. And you see, what were the sacrifices for? The the Old Testament word was atonement, right? The word atonement means rolling back. It does not mean the full payment made. That's redemption. The full purchase, buying back. That's the New Testament word. The Old Testament word was atonement. The day of atonement. Yom Kippur, where the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat, rolled back the pouring out of God's judgment another year. God accepted the forgiveness, the sacrifice in the place of His Son till the final sacrifice could be made. Salvation is always by grace. There is only one place in the universe grace originates. That is the person and the power of Almighty God. It is unmerited favor. God owes us nothing. I'll tell you one of the things that just frustrates me to the umpteenth degree is the attitude of entitlement that has become part of our culture. How many of you have experienced that? You know, I I read an article. It was unbelievable. No, I was listening to it on the radio. It said, studies have been done claiming that listening, listen to this, that most people are more productive if they get more sleep. And so, therefore, employers should recognize this and not require anyone to be into work before 10 a.m. so that the, their, their employees can get enough sleep. How many of you want to believe that a millennial made <laughs> did that study, huh? I mean, my, my dad had a cure for that. He said, get up and do it anyway. Amen? Uh, and by the way, that works for my kids too. Uh, the simple truth of the matter is we have a lot of people that expect things to be done for them. And then God comes by and gives us grace and we approach Him in a way, yeah, I deserve that. But I challenge you, there is no higher insult or blasphemy against the God of the Bible than to prevene upon His grace, than to say, yeah, I deserve that. Yeah, that's right. God, if you're going to give me a fair break, you're going to have to do that. That attitude. Grace comes from God. And we don't deserve it. You see, if we'll get a hold of that, that will help us understand the message of the Bible. Amen? It's by grace, and how is God's grace appropriated? Through faith. How does faith work? Faith is obedience to the revealed Word of God. So, Did Abel get saved the same way you and I get saved? He got saved by God's grace through faith. But here's where things are different. Abel's faith, according to Hebrews chapter 11, was evidenced by what? Offering to God the sacrifice that God asked for, a lamb. Cain's faith was proven perverse and not biblical and not acceptable to God in the fact that he brought a sacrifice to God. Why did he bring that sacrifice to God? Because God had told them, if you want forgiveness of sins, you must bring a sacrifice to me. And so Cain said, I'll bring my sacrifice my way. That's not faith. 
that is rebellion against the revealed Word of God. And see, this solves the problem when we go to James chapter 2. And uh, let's just take a moment and go there. James chapter 2. And I know if you've been around the church very long, these are things that we teach often. And yet, um, the last time we did anything actually with dispensationalism in a full series like this was 2012. Uh, So that was a little while back. Uh, That's according to the dates in in my computer that these are... uh, I have reviewed on occasion. I think I brought one lesson last year or maybe the year before and got out the chart of dispensationalism and just went through and won. But I want us to... I want us to set a foundation, and some of these things are going to sound so basic, and that's because they are. They're a part of everything that we teach. And we get to James chapter 2, and uh, we're going to start in verse 15. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, Notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. I will show thee my faith, how? By my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Then we have two examples. The example of Abraham and the example of Rahab. How that their faith produced works. I am glad that I am not in Abraham's place. God came to Abraham and said, get thee up from thy kindred and thy family, and you're just going to go to a place where I'm going to tell you. And Abraham did. And he lived in the land that we now call Israel. And how much of the land was actually his? Only one parcel. It is known as the cave of Machpelah outside the city of Hebron. It is where he buried Sarah and where he was buried. The only part of the land of Israel that Abraham ever possessed was a place to bury the dead and a place for him to be buried. And yet, I love this. Who is living in the land of Israel today? The physical descendants of Abraham. By the way, not all of the physical descendants of Abraham have claim to the land of Israel because that land was given to Abraham and his descendants through the son of promise, which is Isaac. And furthermore, it is delineated to the twelve tribes of Israel. And so... Before we continue here, we just, I just want to say one thing we must make solid. If you are going to be part of God's redemptive family, if you're going to end up on the right side of eternity, there is only one way you can access God. That is by His grace, through faith in His Word. There's only one way of salvation. That faith is going to be reflected. And so, we, if you want to flip your paper over, you should have something on the back there. And we're just trying next week, Lord willing, by God's grace, we will be getting into the actual dispensations and showing the cycle and how we can define What is a dispensation? If you want to call it by another name, be my guest. 
the names, most of the names I've gotten out of, is out of a book that was written a little over a hundred years ago by Clarence Larkin, and it talks about dispensational truth. Now, is everything that Mr. Larkin says absolutely true? No, some of it's really wacko. But he was one of the first Bible teachers in modern times that said there's a difference between the physical descendants of Abraham and the church of Jesus Christ. This is one of the great errors of our day. If you cannot keep Israel separate from the church, you are going, your, your Bible is going to be a set of contradictions. It cannot, you cannot help it. Because the promises that God made to Israel for the land and, and the redemption and the temple and all of these things, they belong to Israel. And the promise that he has made to his church belong to his church. So, a dispensation simply is a step in God's revelation to man. It is an economy. It is a definable, it is a viewable system of God's administration. And usually it is in a time period, a limited period of time. Uh, but be careful. The emphasis on a dispensational understanding of Scripture is not on the time element. Uh, I had a, uh, a Bible that years ago it was given to me and you would open up and it would say, Isaiah the prophet. He prophesied that at, and it gave a date there. And uh, being a young Christian, man, I looked at that and said, wow, that's really cool. All the dates are right there. Well, a little later, I got somebody else's Bible, and they had all different dates. And, and I read an encyclopedia, and they had all kinds of different dates. And you know what? We, we have a hard time. How many of you know what day of the week you were born on? That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Esther's pretty easy. She was born in the middle of a wedding. So, no, that had to be a Saturday. Um, I was born on a Tuesday. You know why? Because after my mother passed away, she gave me my original hospital birth certificate, and it said Tuesday on there. And I said, oh, that's interesting. What I'm trying to help you understand is that we can argue about time and dates all we want. And that's not going to change one thing that happened in the Word of God. What we need to know is what God said and how that changed man's understanding of God. Amen? The emphasis is on the revelation that God has given us. It is a stewardship. God has given us His grace. He did not give everything at one time. I love the story of Abraham on Mount Moriah. How that he offered Isaac and just before he took the knife to, to kill Isaac and light the fire to burn his body, God told him to stop. And what was there? There was a ram. You ever wonder why it was a he-goat caught by his horns in the thicket? Because God was going to offer His Son in our place. He was trying to help Abraham understand. I, 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 every time I think of that, uh, my wife will remember this. We were at Cleveland Baptist and a preacher came, guest preacher. and Oh man, he preached up a storm. Uh, one of the most emotional messages that I've ever heard. The only problem was... There was so little Bible in it, it was aggravating to the... I still get upset about it. And the context of his... Uh, the pretext of his message, not context, pretext, was how was Abraham going to explain to Miss Abraham that he had killed their boy? Now, you read the book of, of Hebrews chapter 11 and what does it say? 
that Abraham expected Isaac to be resurrected and he and Isaac, he said, I and the lad in the book of Genesis are going to go yonder and worship and we will return unto you. That was the faith of Abraham. Amen? You see, Abraham was careful with God's grace. Would you be careful enough to obey God's grace if he told you to do what Abraham did? By the way, you're safe. He's not going to. Amen? Because that truth no longer needs to be illustrated because the truth being illustrated has already recorded on the pages of our Bible. But I want you to see something. Abraham did not have the entire Bible to read. He didn't know. And he had to be careful with God's grace. That's why he obeyed. That's what faith is. And you and I, we need to be careful with God's grace. Do you realize it's God's grace that has given us this fellowship we call a church? You know, how, how careful are we with that fellowship? How careful are we with that grace, that unmerited favor that God has given us? If we're not careful, we'll all take advantage of God's grace. It is a, a dispensation is a complete cycle in God's revelation. Here's how it shows up. God reveals himself to man. We have the Garden of Eden. God reveals himself as the creator. That's the reason why Adam was created first. And then God had Adam name all of the animals. Then God made Eve and brought her to the man. And God presented himself as the creator of all things. Now, as God gives us the account of creation, which only God can do because man didn't show up until the last day when it was all done. What did God continually say at the end of each day? It is, it was good. Now, does that phrase ring a bell with Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6? It ought to. He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. God is. God is good. God spends the first chapter of Genesis telling us that he said, let there be light and let it divide the evening. From, and we'll, I'm sorry, I'm getting into next week's lesson. But God saw that it was good. All right. God gave revelation to man. Man failed to obey God's revelation. Then God judges man for that failure. Well, God doesn't leave sin unpunished. Yet, then God comes and he gives reconciliation and new revelation. And each step here is a proof that man cannot earn or become worthy of God's grace or his goodness. People have often, uh, in the 60s when I was growing up, the, the mentality was, it, the reason people are bad is because they're in a bad environment. And so we're going to build a good environment in good neighborhoods and put bad people in there and they'll become good. We call them projects. In the 50s and the 60s, these things were built, and what happened? The whole neighborhood went bad, didn't it? And there's still eyesores in our city today. And it's not because everybody they moved in there was bad. It was because they took away so many things that God has put forth in His Word that make us better human beings. You know what one of those things is? 
rewards for hard work. When things are just handed to people, do they appreciate them? I remember going to Bible college with kids whose parents were paying their whole bill. And they were just, yeah, you went to Bible college with the same kind of kids, didn't you? Just a little bit later than me. It was hilarious. You're sitting there working. I, I had to work 40 hours a week. Most of that time I worked on the night shift. I got off at 7 o'clock in the morning and then went to school at 7.30. You know why? Because I wanted to pay my bills. And the sad part is, my college charged me more than Heartland does my children today. You want to know why? This is just a rabbit here. You want to know why I'm so big on the May offering and I really challenge our church to do its part? Is because we're allowing students to go through college and pay their bills. I've explained that to some other people and they're just sitting there going, wow. Can I send my kid to that school? Well, first you've got to come join church, come a Baptist and if your child wants to serve the Lord in full-time ministry, Heartland is the co- Oh, 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 oh. It's a preacher's college. Uh, yeah. Uh, it is for people who want to serve in the ministry. Okay. So, what we have here is we have proof that no matter what society... Man, the Garden of Eden was perfect. There was no sin in the Garden of Eden until Adam and Eve brought it there. But man failed, didn't he? Man grew corrupt. I'll tell you, my, my heart was broken as I heard different commentators talk about this thing that has happened in our state and our governor clapping his hands and putting his thumbs in his suspender straps that he even smart enough to put on. I'm sorry, I'm just going to get off on the wrong trail here. But there, the Bible already says whose glory is their shame. We, we just need to understand something here. It doesn't change a thing about our responsibilities and the grace of God that is given to us. And the faithfulness that God expects from us today. Till He takes us out in His time. Man always fails. Now, here is one of the key parts. When God changes something, when He fulfills something, the original item that is changed, the original ceremony that is changed, sets a pattern or helps us understand that truth better for this present age. The idea of the sacrifices. Uh, first, we have uh, God sacrificing outside the Garden of Eden and making clothes for Adam and Eve. Then we have Abel sacrificing his lamb, and that continues right on down to the flood. The first thing that Noah does when he gets off the ark is he sacrifices animals to God. Abraham made an altar wherever he was living. Then we have the children of Israel in the land of Egypt who obviously did not sacrifice while they were in Egypt for the most part because of the explanation of Moses and those things. They were enslaved. Then after the law, only the priests, the sons of Levi, could offer the sacrifices. And it had to be in the exact place. First, the tabernacle traveled with them through the wilderness. Then when the temple was built, uh, Jews from all over the world were not allowed to sacrifice or celebrate the Passover wherever they were. If they were going to celebrate it, they had to come to Jerusalem. The sacrifice had to be offered on the temple's altar in the city of Jerusalem by a priest ordained as a direct descendant of Aaron. You know what we have here? Can you look at this? God is demanding these sacrifices and the scope gets narrower and narrower until it's only offered in one place by one family 
And then there is only one sacrifice of one person forever, Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Each one teaches us. He supersedes. He does, there is no contradiction in all of those. He is narrowing our scope so that we can understand what the sacrifice of Jesus is all about. Amen? Do, do you see that picture? Do you see that illustration? How that helps us? And we talk about Noah's Ark in Genesis 6-8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Does that sound like salvation by grace? And, and Hebrews says, by faith, Noah did what? He obeyed God and built an ark. Grace through faith. Now, is it going to do you any good to build an ark? Nope. Just get you in trouble with the building department, your neighbors, and, and your budget, because you cannot uh, afford uh, we, you can't even buy gopher wood. There's always been that, that joke forever in the English language. Why is it gopher wood? Because that's what Noah said. Boys, gopher wood, right? No, uh, that's bad, isn't it? Terrible. Uh, the, the, uh, you know, and, and I, I guess there's some resurgence. Somebody said they found the ark in, in the mountains of Turkey or whatever. It doesn't matter. You know what? Let's go to, very quickly here, just a moment. Would you come with me to First Peter chapter 3? And I'll tell you, if you want to read a commentary and get confused, this is one of those passages to do that with. Because commentators just don't know what to do. Verse 20 says, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I'll be the first to tell you the wording is a little difficult. But if we will apply simple dispensational practice, you know what we find out? The ark is a picture of Jesus Christ. How were they saved? They went in the ark. Uh, how are you saved? Well, Romans chapter 6 says we are baptized into the death of Jesus Christ. Now, who does that? Does that happen when you get wet? No, that happens when you get saved. Ah, so the like figure is the ark. Amen? The truth is the Holy Spirit puts us into Jesus Christ when we get saved. And I want you to understand something here. You just made simple, or I helped make simple for you, one of the five most difficult passages in all your Bible. You see, that's why we use dispensational truth. Because we can get past the things that catch us, because they were saved by water, how were they saved by water? Well, the water is what floated the ark and kept it from crashing and being covered with the water and drowned. So, but the figure is the ark is a picture of Jesus Christ. That's why we don't build arks anymore. We don't need to. But we need to be in Jesus Christ. And the only one that can get that job accomplished is the Holy Spirit of God. Amen? And we've gone over this many times, the law of the Sabbath. God established the Sabbath on the seventh day of creation. He rested. He did nothing. He created nothing. He said it was complete. The works of God were finished. It was codified in the law. It was a capital offense for breaking the Sabbath. In fact, they accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. In fact, Jesus did things 
They would just tweak those Pharisees and make them want to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. But Jesus never broke the Sabbath. Because what was he doing? The works that his father gave him to do. And when he was on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. Ah. Then we go to Hebrews 3 and 4. And it says there's a rest for the believer. How many of you are resting in the finished works of Jesus Christ for your salvation? Could you say amen? Then you're celebrating the Sabbath every day. You see, the Sabbath teaches us that there's no rest until the work is done. Amen? Mother knows that. There is no rest until the work is done. And that doesn't finish when they leave for college, now does it? Uh, It just keeps coming. But there will come a day when we're at rest with God. Amen? And we need to celebrate the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, so these, these first two lessons are just setting a foundation. The, the guidelines, as we say, why and what dispensationalism is. And if you hear people talking about it and start talking about different kinds of salvation, here's what you just got. Write it down. They're misusing dispensationalism. I met a preacher one time. He says, I'm not like you. I don't use dispensationalism to understand my Bible. I use it to build doctrine. Whoa, wait a minute. That's not real. We use the Bible to find out what doctrine is, right? And how do we understand the Bible? By paying attention to the literal words, the historical context, the cultural norms, all of these things. It does take study. It takes a lot of study. But if we'll be consistent, we'll be dispensational. Don't be afraid of it. Just like the word Baptist, misused by an awful lot of people, but it's still a good word. And it helps us keep things in order. And by the way, uh, this isn't in your notes, but is there any system of Bible study that answers all of the questions? Absolutely not. Because God doesn't explain everything to us. But I'll tell you, if you compare the questions that are left unanswered by studying the Bible as we study it, and compare that to the questions that are left unanswered by other methods such as covenant theology, such as allegory and non-literal interpretations. You, you let those people, you look at the questions they generate and it's just like, this is crazy. How, how can you believe these things? Because the questions that are answered are the ones that help us to live each and every day. And all God's people said, let's pray.